So excited to be here with you as today we are finishing uh, last week what I called a two-part message. And today I want to look at what I'm calling the habits of happiness. The habits of happiness. And to do that, we're going to look at the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians, it is one of the most positive, joyful, uh, happiest books in the Bible. And so if you would grab your notes, because we're just going to jump right in. If you remember last week, we talked about the complexities of the inner life. And we talked about how difficult it can be to manage the emotions that are so dynamic within us. If you remember, we saw how people tend to think that our happiness comes from external circumstances. In fact, it got me to thinking that one of the common mistakes that we make is what I would call when and then thinking. In other words, it's you, you say something like, when such and such happens, then I'll be happy. For example, when I get to college, finish it with me, then I'll be happy. When I get married, then I'll be happy. When I get this job, then I'll be happy. For some of you, it's when I have a baby, when my kids are grown, when my kids leave the house, then I'll be happy. It's a win and then thinking. And guys, we've done this all of our lives. And I want to say to you at the beginning that the Bible says no. If you go to God's word and you begin to study it, you'll see that the managing of emotions is a complex thing. And the Bible says you can look at different factors to help you dig into it. But this is not the way to go. And by the way, I've got to mention from the very beginning, I said we're going to jump right in, so if you'd write this down right at the beginning in your notes, you've got to understand this. Happiness is not really the goal anyway. <laughs> Let me say that again. Happiness is not really the goal anyway, but happiness is the byproduct of right thinking and right acting. You know, a lot of people, they come, they ask me, um, Pastor, what do I have to do to change? I want to change my life. What do I need to do? I want to say to you that the key to change is altering the way that you think. In fact, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, that says transformation, the key to transformation comes by renewing your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his perfect will. But you've got to begin to change the way that you think. And happiness is not the goal. Happiness is the byproduct of changing the way you think. Now, do you remember last week I kicked off by talking about Paul's letters in the New Testament, and I mentioned that they are so incredible, they are so astounding and in Philippians 1, you get a great example of this. In verses 12 to about 30, Paul talks about all the pain and all the problems and all the pressures he's currently going through. And yet, I won't read, read this to you. This is not on the screen, but I'll just say at the beginning of chapter 1, right in verse 3, he says, I thank God every time I remember you and all my prayers. I always pray with joy. Now, Philippians is filled with problems. It's filled with pain. And yet, Paul says, I have joy anyway. It is remarkable. How can a human being have this attitude in spite of the problems? Now, I'm going to answer that right now. We answered it last week. You know what it is? Paul has come to know the starting reality, the startling reality of Jesus Christ. That as long as he has Jesus 
in his life, he has everything. That Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of all of his desires and wants. So Paul's at a place in his life where he could say, it doesn't matter what else happens. I have Jesus. Everything else is gravy. Everything else is icing on the cake. Because I have Jesus Christ. In fact, do you remember the scripture that we read last week? We said it really is the secret to all things. It had to do with the tree of life. Do you remember? It went like this. It said, hope deferred makes the heart, what? Sick, but a longing fulfilled is the tree of life. And you remember we realized, oh, Jesus is the tree of life. Jesus is the source of all of our longing fulfilled. When we put our hope in lesser things, when that hope gets deferred, it crushes us. But when we put our hope in Jesus Christ, now, there's nothing that can stop us. Now, guys, this is the reason why most people are miserable in America today. Because people in America today and in the West think that happiness comes from self-gratification. The more possessions that I get, if I get more pleasures, if I get more position, if I, if I get to where I want to go in life. Listen, if you're here this morning and you think your happiness is dependent upon your possessions, your pleasures, or your position, I'm just gonna say, your heart's not right with God. You need to say, God, search me and know me and change the way that I think. Changing the way that you think is the key to your transformation. Some of you, you think, well, if I could just get sex, if I could just get salary, if I could just get status, if I get better stuff for me, I'll be happier. And I'm saying to you over and over and over again in the Bible, it says that doesn't work. In fact, Paul says something insightful in this passage that we're going to read in just a second. Verse 21, I'll give you a sneak peek. He says a secret. He says, for me to live is what? For me to live is Christ. Everything is about Christ. My whole life is about Jesus. And then he goes on and he says something astounding. He says, even to die is gain. Let me ask you a question. If somebody came up to you today and asked you to fill in the blank, what word would you use? In fact, do this on your notes. For me to live is what? What do you center your life around? We could answer that in all sorts of ways, I think. For me to live is entertainment. For me to live is sports. <laughs> Golf, baseball, football. For me to live is clothes, you know. For me to live is to make money. For many of you, for me to live is my family or my children. I wanna say to you that nothing should fill in that blank except for Jesus Christ. It's not that any of those things are bad. They're not bad. They're good, praise God for them. But none of them should have the place of Jesus Christ. And how you fill that line in determines your happiness. Now listen to me. Philippians is an amazing example. I'll never forget, I spent one month where I read the book of Philippians every day of the month. I got to know it very, very well. Let me give you the background. Paul is in prison. He's in prison in Rome. In fact, the last four years of Paul's life before this letter, it's not a pretty picture. He spent two years in jail in Caesarea on false charges. He gets sent to Rome. On his way to Rome, he's shipwrecked in the Mediterranean Ocean. 
He ends up on a deserted island in the Mediterranean Ocean with a few people, stranded with some people. There are some poisonous snakes on the island. He actually gets bit by one of them. Then he's imprisoned for another two years in Rome. And listen to this. Paul has a guard literally chained to him 24 hours a day. He doesn't even have privacy when he wants to use the bathroom. He has no privacy at all. He is such an important prisoner that he can't be left alone. Now listen, Paul has every reason to be unhappy. He has every reason to be bitter. He has every reason to be depressed. But instead he writes, and let's read this section together. Look what he says. He says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters... What has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for who? Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. Now, by the way, rivalry. He's talking about people who are on the outside here. And he says, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they could stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and in this I what? rejoice. Oh, yes. And I will continue to rejoice for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me is going to turn out for my deliverance. By the way, he's writing to the church in Philippi. That's why it's called Philippians. If he was writing to you people in California, it would be called the Californians. And look what he says. He says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in body. Verse 25. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. And then he goes on and he says to the Philippians, I'll say to you Californians, look at what he says. He says, whatever happens, conduct yourself worthy. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come to see you or I hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. Let's conclude with this. Verse 29 says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, let's read this next line together, but also to suffer for him. Isn't that interesting? 
It's been granted to you not only to believe in him, but it's been granted to you that you should suffer for his name's sake. Powerful. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now you hear that I have. Now, the question that I have for you is, how has Paul maintained happiness in spite of everything he's going through? I think that there are four habits we learn from this little section that I just want to spell out for you. Now, we said last week, ultimately, it's complex, your emotions, and ultimately, the answer is Jesus Christ. What's at the center of your heart? The tree of life. Now, I want to give you some habits that after you put Jesus at the center, you begin to practice that help you maintain happiness. You ready? Everybody say, I'm ready. All right, write this down. Here's habit number one. Here we go. I can be happy no matter what happens if I begin to look at every problem from God's point of view. Write that down. I can be happy no matter what happens if I look at every problem from God's viewpoint. See, happy people have a larger perspective. Happy people have a bigger worldview. Happy people see the bigger picture. And when you can't see the bigger picture, you get discouraged. You get angry. You get frustrated because you don't see what God is doing. You don't even have a sense of it. In fact, I thought about this this Thanksgiving when at our Thanksgiving Eve service, which we do every year, it was awesome, as we all came together Wednesday night before Thanksgiving to worship him together here on the Milburn campus. If you've never done that before, mark it already for next year. As we were worshiping together, we heard from a woman by the name of Veronica, who about this time last year, her husband died, a very good friend of mine by the name of Jeff. Jeff passed away, left his wife and their children, And she shared a little bit about the perspective that she has on this. I thought I'd share it with you in case you weren't here Thanksgiving Eve. Take a look at this. What good is a faith that hasn't been tested? I have to go through this. You know, like my faith has to be tested in order for to know if it's real because without it, if it's not tested, we could think we have faith. Because that's how I felt. I thought I had faith then, but after going through this, I don't know. I'm not so sure, you know. I felt like I was losing it. But um, the Lord is so faithful. In October, you know, when when we're supposed to put um, the decorations out for, for Thanksgiving, um, I remember I put out this frame and it said, um, in all things, in all circumstances, give thanks, First Thessalonians 5.18. And so I had it up, you know, that month when Jeff passed away. And so it, it was by my doorway. So every time I would walk by it, I would see that sign or that frame and think like, in, in all circumstances, give thanks. And so I was trying to be obedient, you know, to that verse. Like, okay, Lord, like I want to be thankful in all circumstances even, you know, if it's not good. And, and then I heard a message about it where it said, um, it doesn't say um, be thankful for the circumstance. It said be thankful in the circumstance. You know, I'm not grateful that, I'm not thankful that this happened. Um, I'm not, you know? Um, but I can thank you, Lord. I can still be thankful to you, Lord, through this, through what's happened.
being thankful for the things that I did have. Like, yes, I lost Jeff and I didn't have Jeff anymore. But what did, what did I have? You know, what were the blessings that the Lord was still bestowing on me? Um, so not focusing so much on what I've lost, but what I still had. That's one thing that the Lord, right off the top when this happened, you know, the Lord brought that, um, that scripture to my, my mind is, um, we do not grieve like those who have no hope. And so that's one thing I remembered. It's like, okay, I have hope. I have the hope of eternal life and that I will see Jeff again. And Elijah, my, my youngest, he reminded me of that because one day I had asked him, you know, do you miss daddy? I, I just wanted us to talk and he said, well, I know where he is, uh, so I can wait. We wait patiently for the Lord and, and we have the hope. I know there's gonna be things, you know, that will come, but I know he's gonna be with me. And I know he's gonna carry me when I can't, you know, I can't walk. I know he'll be the one holding me through it all. You know, because when I think, wow, Lord, like, he's in your presence. He's experiencing fullness of joy, um, amazing love, you know, like, perfect love in your presence now. He's too good. He's too good to not be there for me, to not provide, to, to fail me. You know, he's, I don't know, I just, I'm in that place now where it's like, okay, Lord, if you carried me through all this, I know you're going to carry me through whatever else comes in the future. So I'm not afraid of the future, you know? I'm not, because I know who's with me. And, um, and I know that we're in his hands. My children are in his hands. And, um, and I just have to remember that. She's an extraordinary person who understands that my happiness is placed with Jesus Christ in spite of the curveballs that were unexpected that life sends our way. Now, let me explain to you what's going on with Paul here. Ever since Paul's become a Christian, you understand, Paul only has one dream, and that was he wanted to preach the gospel in Rome. Why? Because Rome is the center of the universe. Rome is the capital of the empire. Rome is the most prestigious, strategic city in the world, and that's why Paul wants to go and preach there. What does Paul want to do? Well, you can know, Paul, Paul wants to rent a coliseum and do a harvest crusade. He wants to preach. He says, I'm going to go to Rome and preach. But God has another idea. God says, Paul, you are going to go to Rome, but you're going to go to Rome as a prisoner. I'm going to make you a prisoner of Caesar. Now, does anybody know who Caesar was at this point? It was a guy by the name of Nero. Anybody ever hear of that guy? That guy was about as wicked and as bad as you can get. And Paul is his royal prisoner. And he has a royal guard chained to him 24 hours a day. Now, listen to this, though. Paul gets to talk to all kinds of key people that he never would have been able to talk to if he were out of prison. Why? Because he was an important prisoner. 
He's chained 24 hours a day to a palace guard for two years. Oh, and by the way, they change their guards every four hours. Do you realize what's happening here? I added it up. Over two years, changing the guard every four hours, Paul got to preach to 4,380 Roman guards. The real question is, who's the real prisoner here? Paul has a captive audience. Paul is talking to the entire court in Caesar's palace. God says to Paul, don't you see, this is my plan. You wanna go rent a Colosseum. You wanna see your name in big city lights. This is how you envision it. But he says, instead, I'm gonna put you in prison. And there were results, guys. There were results that we know for sure. For example, chapter four says that within two years, some of Nero's own family accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Can you believe that? And by the way, Paul is in prison for so long, he's forced to sit still. So what does he do with all that time sitting still besides sharing the gospel with the guards every four hours? He writes the New Testament. He writes Romans, he writes 1st and 2nd Corinthians, he writes Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, and we can go on and on. You guys get the idea? He does all of this because he has the time to do it. Now I just ask you, which do you think would have the bigger impact? Paul renting a Colosseum or Paul being a prisoner? What does he say? Look what he says. He says, no, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to do what? Now, can you see, though, the kind of heart this guy has to have? He could never say that if the tree of life wasn't Jesus Christ. If Jesus wasn't the center of his life, he wouldn't say such a thing. It'd be all about him. Yeah, God's getting the glory, but I'm struggling. Man, pray for me. Get me out of this place. But his focus is Jesus Christ. And he's saying, I've got my plan, but God has a bigger plan. And so I can be happy because I can see what God is doing through my problem. Now, friend, listen to me. I want you to think right now, all over this room, online, at the other campuses, Bullard, Kerman, listen, everybody, I want you to think of a problem that you're facing right now in your life. And I just want us to take a second here and just bow our heads here for just a second. Would you do that? Just think of a problem you're facing in your life. Let's bow our heads. And I just want to pray these words in our hearts. God, help me to see my problem from your perspective. Give me your vantage point. Help me to see this problem with the eyes of faith. In Jesus' name, amen. And anytime you have a problem, anytime you start to see that you're getting unhappy, I want you to learn to see it from God's point of view. And then you'll be able to face the problem in faith. Now, let me tell you what's gonna happen when you do that. Write this down very quickly. First, if you start to live out your problems that way, it's gonna be a witness to unbelievers. Write that down. If you start to handle your issues that way, people are gonna notice that. They're gonna say, man, what's up with this guy? What's up with this girl? Pro the problems of their life aren't wrecking them. They trust God. Notice verse 13. He says, as a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains. I guess so. He's witnessed over 4,000 times. 
It's become noticed. And then here's the second thing that'll happen. It will not only be a witness to unbelievers, but it will be an encouragement to believers. Write that down. Verse 14, he says, and because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It's powerful to think about, God, how might you want to use this problem in my life? Number two, write this down. Number two. Here's second habit of Paul's. I can be happy no matter what if I don't let others control my attitude. Let me say that again. I can be happy no matter what if I don't let others control my attitude. And everybody said? Now here in this book, Paul talks about four people. You see it in verses 15 to 17, and three of them, he says, are attacking his ministry. They slander him, they judge him, they criticize him, they're gossipers, they're creating all sorts of controversy. And what they wanna do is they just wanna make his problems worse. Have you ever known anybody like that? It just seems they wanna make your problems worse. Now here's what he says. He says, it's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. Do me a favor, circle the word in your notes, rivalry. Circle rivalry. In the Greek, the word is eris. You know what the word actually means? It means these are people that love to argue. Hey, have you ever met somebody that just loves to argue? Come on, show of hands. Keep them up if you're sitting right next to them right now. Oh, a few of you, a few of you are bold. There are some people that just love to argue. They love conflict. They enjoy controversy. These people are contentious. They are divisive. These are the kind of people that he's talking about. He says they preach Christ out of envy. They're trying to stir up trouble for me. Do you know how? He says they're critical of me. By the way, would you agree that there are a few things that can rob you of your happiness faster than when people are critical of you? Come on, anybody have in-laws? You know, when someone's critical of you, your stomach starts churning. You know, when you're criticized at work, when you're criticized by friends, when you're criticized by neighbors. Now, why do we struggle with criticism so much? It's because we want to be loved. Everybody does. It's because we want to be approved. But I, guys, I've got to give you this happiness hint. You ready? You don't need anybody else's approval to be happy. You don't need people's permission to be happy. Do you know that? Write this down. If I know that God is for me, I'm as happy as I choose to be. Let me say that again. If I know that God is for me, I'm as happy as I choose to be. Now, Paul was modeling this idea here. And then in the next verse, he talks about the good guys, his friends. He says, well, it's, he says, others preach Christ from genuine goodwill and they do it out of love. He says, those pre people bring me joy. And then in verse 17, he talks about another type of person against him. These are what I'd call competitors. He says, these people have a selfish ambition. You notice it right there in the middle of the text. Now, guys, I hate to say this, but there are actually people out there. Paul's talking about people that minister from selfish ambition. There are actually people out there who seem like they're doing a good work in ministry, but they're ego-driven. You know, be careful of people who need the ministry more than you need their ministry. 
Let me just say that again. Be careful of people who need the ministry more than you actually need their ministry. Because their whole identity gets wrapped up in it. They need people to need them. How do you know somebody's operating from selfish ambition? It's when they're ego-driven. When their ministry is all about them. It's all about their name. Their name is in lights. Beware of that when you see that going on. How do you know somebody's operating from selfish ambition? If you hang out with that person and you notice they're quick to point out other people's faults, what they're doing wrong. Oh, if they would just do this better, if they would just be like this, if they were this kind of leader, you know somebody's ego-driven when they're like that. Have you ever noticed people feel the need to compete over everything? How many of you have ever had a friend that they have to compete with you over everything? How about business competitors? Always competing with you. People compete over everything. Have you noticed neighbors compete over their lawn? The neighbor's lawn is greener. Oh, honey, come on, you know, we gotta get, we gotta get, get our lawn green. You can have a competition over the kind of car you drive. You can have a competition over your kids. I know many of you, you have that bumper sticker on your car that says, my kid was student of the month. You know. Yeah, at Folsom Prison, he was student of the month. <laughs> some of you, it's like you compete over hairstyle. Not all of us get to do that, but some of you do. Some of you, you compete over the shoes you wear. Don't look right now, but you, you compete. You know it's true. And I'm saying to you, if you don't begin to deal with this, oh, you're going to be unhappy so much of your life. And Paul says, even in ministry, people do this. He talks about conspirators or enemies, people who he says, they want to stir up trouble for me. They want to add to my pain while I'm in prison. Now, how do they do that? I'll tell you a way. Gossip. Gossip. Guys, let me tell you something that's true. Take this to the heart. Gossip is the number one sign of a troublemaker. Do you know, we looked at Proverbs all last week, and do you know the book of Proverbs says that a person who gossips is as bad as a saboteur? Literally, what Proverbs says is that gossips are like emotional terrorists. And Paul says, listen, I've got all these people in my life, but I don't let them rob me. Don't let them rob you. What does he say? This is a line you've got to get. Let's go to the next verse. What does he say? He says, let's read it together. Everybody real loud. But what does it matter? Let's read that again. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Jesus said it like this, Matthew 5. Blessed are you when they revile you and say all kinds of evil against you for my name's sake because that's what they do to me. Paul says, why can you be happy? I'll tell you why. Verse 20, for it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but to also suffer for him. That's powerful. Number three, write this down. Two more habits, really quickly. Number three, write this down. I can be happy no matter what if I trust God to work things out. If I trust God to work things out. In other words, I don't try and work things out myself when things are falling apart. I don't try and put them back together. I let God put them back together. Now friends, what is that called? That's called faith. 
When you're going through a problem, you gotta understand, everybody needs to get this. When you're going through a problem, you can do two things. You can worship or you can worry. Do you understand that? When you're going through a problem, you can choose to worship or you can worry. If you spend all your time worrying, what you're saying is, I'm God. Or you can worship and let God be God. If you worshiped more, you'd worry a whole lot less. I would challenge you, some of you that are given over to worry, to start daily worshiping God. Put on some praise and worship music and start singing to the Lord. The bigger God gets in your eyes, the smaller your problem will get. I promise you that. Listen, our church right now, I've emailed you, I've told you, we're down in our, we're finishing the year, we have one month left. I'm asking you to fast and pray with me that we meet our budget goals for this year. It's been an amazing year. We've seen more ministry than ever. We've seen our church expand to multiple campuses, but we have an issue. I'm gonna tell you something. I'm not worrying, I'm worshiping. <laughs> because God's gonna do what God's gonna do. You can pray or you can panic. You can worship or you can worry. And then Paul goes on and he says, yes, I will continue to rejoice for I know through your prayers and God put provision that the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Now, I want you to circle the phrase there back in your notes, I will. I will continue to rejoice because it's an act of the will. In fact, write this down. It's your choice to rejoice. I don't care how bad things are in your life right now. It's your choice to rejoice. You need to know that. It's an act of your will. This is a powerful verse. He says, yes, and I will continue to rejoice for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened will actually turn out for deliverance. That is a powerful thing. Number four, and we'll be done. Write this down. Number four. I can be happy no matter what happens if I stay focused on my purpose, not my problems. In other words, that you stay focused on God's purpose for your life. If you stay focused not on your purpose, but on God's purpose, you can be happy even when your life seems like it's fallen apart. Guys, listen, Paul, in this letter, he's an old man now. He's in prison, he's a long way from home, he's in Rome, he's awaiting death by execution. They've taken away everything. They've taken away his friends, they've taken away his privacy, they've taken away his freedom, they've taken away his ability to travel around. He's got somebody chained to him 24 hours a day. But there's one thing they cannot take away from Paul. They can't take away his purpose. That cannot be taken away from him. And they cannot take away his ability to make choices. I'll never forget reading Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. Remember Viktor Frankl? He was a Jewish psychiatrist that was taken to one of the death camps in Nazi Germany. And all of his family and all of his friends, they were being gassed, they were being murdered, they were being killed. You've got to read his book, Man's Search for Meaning. He said in his book, I remember one day... We stood in front of the Gestapo, stark naked. They took our clothes away. They even took my wedding ring away. And I stood there with nothing at all. And then I realized there is one thing they cannot take away from me. They cannot take away my choice in how to respond. Nobody can take that away from me. 
Viktor Frankl said, I cannot control what others do to me. I cannot control what other people do around me, but I can control how I respond. Guys, every problem you go through is an opportunity to bear fruit. Some of you, you're praying for patience. You're asking, God, give me more patience, give me more patience. How exactly do you think God's gonna do that? Do you think he's just gonna zap you? Zap patience. Some of you, you're praying to God to give you, you know, more love for people. How do you think he's gonna do that? Zap, more love. No, you know how he's gonna give you more love? He's gonna give you more love by putting you around unlovable people and then you have to choose how to respond to that situation. How is he gonna give you more patience? He's gonna make you stand in line at the DMV. That's what he's gonna do. Can I get a witness? That's what God does. How does God bear fruit in your life? He puts you in situations that's gonna test. Everything you go through is a test for your character. Listen to me, this life is boot camp. This life is the warm-up act. What you're going through right now is preschool. God is preparing you for a far greater thing. You're gonna take with you the word of God and your character. And God says, I'm trying to build your character through the word of God. Paul had such purpose. Look at what he says. He says, listen, if I'm to go on living in the body, this is gonna mean fruitful labor for me. I'll get to serve God. Yet what do I choose? I don't know. I'm torn. I want to depart and die and be with Christ. That's better. Shouldn't we have that perspective of death? I do more funerals than anybody in this room probably. That's my job. I marry and I bury. I gotta tell you guys, while I grieve with people, I've lost almost every family member I have to drug abuse, suicide, cancer. I've lost almost every family member on my side of the family that I have. And I gotta tell you, I'm still happy. Why? Because I got to pray with those family members to know Jesus Christ. And I know that they're with the Lord. And I know that they put their trust in him, not because they were good enough, but because Jesus is good enough for them. And I'd say, you know what, Jesus, I know this is just sayonara for a minute. I used to tell my mom, she was dying of cancer, we used to read, I'd said, we're gonna read everything in the Bible that the Bible has to say about what's gonna happen to you soon. So we started reading through it, and I said, Mom, the only way I can make sense are heads or tails of it, because you're gonna be happy, and with God, God's beyond time and space. See, God's beyond time and space because he had to create time and space. So we can't be in time and space, he has to be beyond it. So I said, Mom, it's probably gonna be like this. You're gonna get there, I'm, I'm already gonna be there from your perspective. I'm gonna miss you though. And I've got joy. How do you serve God on earth? By fulfilling his purpose for you. Now guys, listen to me. Let me close with this. You can't serve God on earth directly because you can't even see him. The only way that you can actually serve God on earth is by serving other people. Jesus said, whatever you've done for the very least of these brothers of mine, you've done it unto me. That's why at North Point, we always talk about our peace plan around here. We always talk about loving people. Jesus says, listen, when you even give somebody a cold cup of water in my name, you're actually giving me a cold cup of water. You know, last night I was over at a Motel 6 because on our Bullard campus, hey Bullard campus, we have been working with, some of you on the Milburn campus have been doing this too, we have been working with a homeless woman, she's 80 years old, and her, uh, and, uh, her grandson 
who's 27 years old. They went through some extraordinary circumstances, ended up living in a tent in the field of our property on our newly acquired Bullard campus. And I just know when God brings somebody to our doorstep, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna jump on. And so these kids come up to me at one of those family nights, these two kids here, and they say, Shane, can we go meet this lady and talk to her about Jesus? I said, yeah, let's go do it. So we walk over there, and that's Gloria right there in the middle. Everybody say hi to Gloria. I talked to her just yesterday, have permission to share her story. So on the Bullard campus and, and some folks from Millbrook, we just started working with her and we said, you know, we can't solve the problem for you right now. She's got three little dogs she doesn't want to lose. <laughs> so we can't get a roof over your head if you're going to keep those three little dogs. But I'll tell you what, let's move you over to the grass where it's softer and get you under light where it's safer and let's just start working with you and working with her and working with her. And uh, these two teenagers, they were the first ones to take the lead on that. It's a remarkable thing. Pastor Mike and I, we've been, it's been about a month or so that we've been working with her and her grandson. This is just last week, Pastor Mike and I took a picture with her. And uh, I gotta tell you, right now they are living in a motel room. I was just over at their motel the other night. But somebody at North Point, wouldn't you know, uh, just, just texted me last night saying, hey Shane, a place has opened up, a small, a small mobile home. That, uh, that we could move these guys into. And, uh, and I'm excited because there are North Points that want to furnish the place for them. Uh, 80 years old, been living on the street. Wants to furnish the place for them, love her and her grandson, and they've got plans. No drugs and alcohol involved with these two. Uh, at least I have a social service background, best I can tell. But I just got to say, whenever you do this for the least of these, Jesus says, that's how you serve me on earth. By the way, you want to help this family? Just write down help for the homeless on this card and I'll know it's you and you want to you help us prepare their household, but we're going to get them into a place and, and all that. But isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? I pray that together we be people that manage our emotions well and handle the problems of life well because if there's one thing that will identify the church today to the unsaved, it, that is that these people know how to handle problems different. They know how to handle their emotions different. I want to be like that. Can I pray for you for that? And pray for me? Father, thank you so much for your good work, great work in our life. Lord, we are, we are dependent upon you. We need you. Would you just meet us? And would you help us to be more and more like you God, we adore you. And we ask that as we yield ourselves to you and submit to your plans, not our plans, but we submit to your plans, Father, help us to have the joy that comes from that. The spiritual buoyancy to always float back up to the top even when life sinks us. God, thank you for that distinctive we can have as believers. Father, we're coming up on the Christmas season and I think of what the angel said. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy. <laughs> Lord, let us have it. We give you the glory and we give you the praise. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen, amen. amen. God bless you.